0: Happy New, Happy New Year! Hopefully everybody's resolutions are still going well, <laughs> I've only had one day so far, get back on track pretty quick. Um, I love New Year's resolutions, I love looking back over the previous year, and looking forward to the next year, making career goals and weight loss goals and cooking goals and project goals and. Uh, different ways and things that I want to try and see if I can make them happen for this next year and look back over last year and last year's goals and see if I, what I hit and what I miss. Um, but in making all our goals, it's important, too, that we try to evaluate ourselves spiritually. How were you spiritually last year? What kind of spiritual goals are you seeking to hit? How are you planning on, on reading the Bible? What books are you planning on studying? What, how, what can you do to increase your prayer life? How, how are you going to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord this year? And as I've been kind of thinking through these things, Uh, One passage has been particularly helpful in resetting my mind and helping me to to think about all of these things and to evaluate things. So uh, I want to spend some time this morning with you in 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17 is a story you're probably very familiar with. It's a story of David and Goliath. Um, But the story of David and Goliath, I would say, is a twice-maligned text. Twice-maligned meaning it's maligned twice. Um, So you have every single storybook Bible that's pretty much ever been printed. Even if there's only five stories in it, it's a little tiny one. It probably has David and Goliath right there in the middle. And it obviously shaves off all the gory stuff, and the picture is usually horribly historically inaccurate, and they get the armor wrong, and they get everything else wrong. Um, But then usually it boils the message of David and Goliath down to something really kind of cute and sweet, like little guys can do big things too. Or you know, you know if you just you know trust God and He'll help you beat the giants. And you know you get this kind of trite little message, and the story gets devolved from a beautiful historical narrative to just kind of a little bit of story. But that's not even the worst way this passage is abused. On the other side, you have your business gurus. You know, if you're a startup company, and you're going to take on Amazon or Walmart, you know, we're the David, and they're the big Goliath, and we have five stones, and here's the five stones of our company, and they they turn it into this business speech, and David and Goliath just gets turned from a story even into just a metaphor. If you're watching the sports channel, and you know, the big team is going up against the little team, and they're, oh, this team is the David, and they're the Goliath, and it's it is just this devolved metaphor of little guy versus big guy, and we're using it as the underdog story. And it's so easy for us, as we kind of know this story, and we're reading through the Bible, and it's easy to just kind of go fast through it, to miss all of the beautiful, intricate details, all the pictures and symbology and the historical facts as well that are packed into this passage. So I want to I slow down. I want to look at this passage. First, I want to give some context and kind of put it back into where it belongs in the biblical narrative. And then what I want to show you this morning is what we see David doing here is perfectly encapsulating the picture of Jesus. He is a wonderful representation here of what Jesus' heart for us is like. So what we're going to see here is that David represents our, Jesus as a shepherd, Jesus as a warrior, and Jesus as a king. All of these are encapsulated in how David goes out to fight against Goliath. But first I want to take a little bit of time, just for a minute here, to give you some historical context. So if you haven't already, open your Bible to uh, 1 Samuel 17. This is a very long chapter where we'll re- be reading sections of it as we go. I'm not going to read it all in one go. It's 58 verses. But let's start here briefly, verse 1. And uh, verse 2 it says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Succoth, which belonged to Judah, and encamped between Succoth and Hezekiah, in Ephes-damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered encamped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up the line of battle against the Philistines. So we see initially this is a real place. These are real valleys and hills and mountains and towns. But what we see is the Philistines are coming up against Israel. This is another time the Philistines are coming to attack. They're a growing nation. Israel's a growing nation. The Philistines want Israel's territory. So this is a defensive war. Israel's goal here is keep these guys out. This is our land. Stay out. Now a few chapters before when Saul had been made king, he had had, the first time he had to go to war, he had to literally carve up a bull, send it out by messenger to all the tribes and say, if you don't get your army over here right now and help me fight a war, I'm going to go over and cut your bulls up. So he had to threaten the nation of Israel to form an army to recruit troops so that he could even begin to defend his borders, and they could begin to even become a country. So he's got this kind of r- ragtag recruited, recruited band, and every year now they've been having to go out and fight the Philistines, and a bunch of other nations around them. They don't have a lot of friends in this point. So this is the the battle lines being drawn here. Um, We have to ask the question, then, who are the Philistines? Well, the Philistines, interestingly enough, are a mixture of the original Canaanite people as well as a group that the Egyptians called the Sea People. So these are people who are originally from the Greek islands. They formed a raiding party. They uh, went up and down the Mediterranean, burning and pillaging, kind of almost like uh, early Vikings almost. Uh, They got into a big war with the Egyptians, lost, and the Egyptians had all of these captured soldiers, and they knew better than to settle them them in Egypt because that doesn't go very well for Egypt. So they decided, let's resettle these guys over in Canaan, get them out of our way. They can intermarry and be part of the Philistines. So the Philistines have actually got this kind of collection of, of what we would consider Greeks, but it wasn't Greece yet, mixed with kind of the original Canaanites. But this is interesting because the Egyptians drew pictures of these people, showed us what their armor looked like, told us about their culture. So from archaeology, we can actually learn quite a lot from both the Egyptians and the, kind of the, the Canaanite Holy Land archaeology about what these guys were like. Things like the fact that they always wore their helmets a little too high up on their head. And they, you know, they, like, they, they really prized the scale armor and stuff that matches up with the scriptures here. So if this is the Philistines here, this this warrior culture, this culture that's growing and expanding, they've had this big influx of people, they want more territory, let's now meet their champion. Look with me at verses 4 through 11. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. A shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And a shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted up to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you are not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and the Israelites heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. It's interesting to see how the author kind of hovers and is fascinated by Saul's accoutrements. Uh, Saul is wearing a full, is, first off, he's, Probably between seven and nine feet high. Um, one of the the Dead Sea Scrolls says that he was four cubits in a span. So that puts him about here, somewhere in this area. Average height of the day is about five, six. So there's a good height difference going on here. Um, it's worth noting also that he is covered in bronze. He has got very, very expensive armor. We know from history that this is a time and period where bron- the price of bronze had skyrocketed. Bronze was prohibitively expensive. And not only that, He has an iron spear, and iron had just been discovered. So this is, he's got the brand new, latest, greatest technology, and he's got what we would consider hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars of like the most high-tech gear imaginable. He's got armor better than everybody else's armor. And he's got a, a weapon that's technology that's just been discovered. He's got everything. He's got a guy who carries his shield for him so his arm doesn't get tired. He has won battle after battle after battle, treasury pot after riches after riches. He is the champion of champions. Nobody beats Goliath. Nobody can stand before the champion of champions. Or can they? Let's go and meet the, let's now look at David who's on the other side. i got to introduce David. I actually want to go with you back to chapter 16 because I don't want you to miss this. You see, Saul has lost the favor of God. God has departed from Saul. Saul is now having nightmares. And, and God sends Samuel to go and anoint the next king, to anoint the chosen one. So he goes to the family of Jesse. And look with me in chapter 16, at verses 10 through 13. I want you to catch this. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to the Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in, and now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So David, the youngest of the, of the sons of Jesse, has been anointed in front of all of his big brothers. You know they're jealous. This, this little, little brother David has now just gotten this amazing, one-of-a-kind blessing. This is the blessing of you are going to be the next king. You were God's chosen one. You get the Holy Spirit to descend on you. So they all know that David is the chosen one. So this idea of David being weak and puny doesn't really hold water. He's not this weak, puny guy. He's literally the chosen one of God, and as we'll see in a minute, too, he's also a a very well-trained shepherd. But not only that, if you look at the the next part of chapter 16, we see something else going on. Saul having these nightmares requires a musician. And who do they pick? Why, it happens to be David. So David comes into his court, we see in verses 21 through 23. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul said to, sent to Jesse and said, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God fell upon Saul, David took the lyre and played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed. So David's not even a nobody. He's an armor bearer in the king's camp. He has a part-time job working for the king. And we'll see here in a minute, he's allowed to polish Saul's bronze armor, but he's not allowed to wear it. So he's never even get, he doesn't get to try it on, but he gets to clean it and help arrange the, the accoutrements in Saul's tent and work alongside Saul. So he's got a job working for his father as a shepherd, and he also has kind of a part-time job as one of the armor-bearers for Saul. He's one of the young men in his count, kind of his inner circle. So we see this is who David is, and David is going back and forth between his jobs because he's working two jobs, and if you've ever had to work two jobs, you know that, that going back and forth. So he's going back and forth between his two jobs. For 40 days now, Goliath has been taunting over and over day after day where is your champion where is your champion israel has no champion israel's god is weak we are strong i'm going to kill you i'm going to feed your you know your i'm going to feed your bones to the the dogs and your flesh to the birds over and over david, goliath has been taunting them and then david shows up and here's the taunt and david's first question i want you to catch this look with me at 17 in verse 26 i believe yes This is David's question when he hears the taunt of Goliath. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is the uncircumcised Philistine for he should defy the armies of the living God? David's question isn't, who's going to kill the giant? How do you kill a giant? What weapons would you use? Have you noticed any weak spots on the giant? Is there any way we can exploit this or change this? His only question is, how much am I going to get paid after I kill this guy? Because this guy's going down. There's no way I, the chosen hero of God, the next future king of Israel, am going to fail to this guy. This guy who's insulting the true living God, he's going down. How much am I going to get for this? And his brothers hear this, and they're, they're jealous because they were there, if you remember. He was anointed in front of them. So they know he's the next future king of Israel. And here he is saying, how much am I going to get paid? And they tell him, you know, you're going to be tax-free for life. You're going to get paid riches, and you're going to get to marry the princess, so you're going to get all of, these, all of these wonderful awards heaped upon you if you defeat the champion. And the, his, his older brother, uh, Eliab, says to him, I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Seeing the battle doesn't mean that he thinks David just wants to sit on the sidelines and watch. He thinks David's here to hog all the glory for himself. So he thinks that David has come now to fight Goliath out of arrogance because he's this cocky young man who knows he can take on the world. And he's got the blessing from God and the Holy Spirit, so he's sure of himself. And it'd be easy to think that, like he has a reason to think that. But that's not what David's doing. And this is the first thing I really want us to capture here, is look what David's speech is to King Saul. Listen carefully. And I want you to see David's heart. Because he's not going to this fight about, oh, you know, I can take this guy, I'm so strong, I'm so great. But he goes in with the heart of a shepherd. He takes Saul to school with the heart of a shepherd. So I want you to hear this. Verse thir- starting in verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they were repeated then before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and, th- and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him. Struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and I struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. And I, I love these verses. You'll notice that the only reason that David's not you know, fit for the job is because he's so young. He's, he's, you're a young man and you're inexperienced. And David says, no, I have plenty of experience. Look at my resume as a shepherd. I've killed multiple bears and multiple lions. I'm guessing no one in this room has ever killed bears and lions without firearms, without even like blade weapons. He's using a staff and rocks. Anybody in here kill a bear with a staff or a rock? Okay, good. I didn't think so. Me neither. Um, So this idea of David being a weak man or puny or whatever, just No. If he's killing bears and lions, and he's the champion of God, I don't think it's fair for us to look at this story and say, you know, David is weak and puny. He's not, and he, he makes that clear first. But I want you to capture his spirit here, because he's, he's not fighting Goliath out of reward for the reward money. He's fighting Goliath, because Goliath has threatened what belongs to God. And what is the heart of a shepherd but to protect what has been given to him? His father gives him sheep. He does not lose his sheep. God has given the nation of Israel this land, and he says, I will not lose what God has given us. That is his motivation, is to obey God and to be faithful to what God has given him. And I want you, most importantly of all, to hear the similarities between the way David talks about rescuing and protecting his sheep and what we just heard a minute ago in John 10. David is saying that I am the good shepherd. The hireling's going to run when things get tough. When the wolves show up or the thief or the or the lion shows up. Hirelings get out of there. They say, okay, this is hopeless, that sheep's gone, I'm backing off. David says, no, I go after my sheep. And I want you to hear this verse again. He says, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And this is a verse I've been repeating to myself over and over again, as I've gone through uh, unusual trials in the last few months. I remind myself over and over, my good shepherd can deliver me out of the lion's mouth. Because if you're a sheep, and we're all sheep here, when we're in the lion's mouth, that's hopeless. That's done. That's game over. There is no hope once the lion's got you in his teeth. And the good shepherd says, no, there is hope. I will pull you out. I will kill the lion. I will grab it by its mane and put it down. You are safe with me because I am your good shepherd. The good shepherd does not know hopeless. And that is such a beautiful truth. And I think that's something that we can really use to comfort our souls. If you're going through a a hard season, I want you to know that your shepherd can pull you from the mouth of a lion. He can pull your loved ones out of the mouth of the lion. He can pull your friends from the mouth of the lion. There is no hopeless with the good shepherd. He can pull you out. He can take care of you. He can nurse you back to health. And this is a beautiful truth for us that we have a good shepherd who will pull us out and who will put down the lion. And that is so wonderful and consoling and helpful when the trials come against us. That our good shepherd is there for us. And that if we wander too far, if we get caught because we went too far out in the field, if the lions come against us or the bears or whatever it is that gets us, our shepherd can get us back out of it. And if we're beating ourselves up because we wandered too far and it seems too hopeless, Jesus says, I leave the 99 and I go for the one. And if he's in the jaws of a lion, I pull him out. And if the lion stands against me, I take it by the beard and I strike it down. And he brings us home and he rejoices over us. And this is our good shepherd. And this is the spirit that David is demonstrating. This is what he wants to be for Israel. Saul may have been elected the king of Israel because he was handsome. David is elected king of Israel because he's the good shepherd. And the good shepherd loves and protects his people. And he does not lose them. And there's this this beautiful truth here. I I want this to resonate in my mind as I preach to myself and in in your mind as I I share this with you. Remember the good shepherd. But this is not where the passage ends. So look with me now as we move from our shepherd to to David as a warrior, representing Jesus as a warrior. What, what does it mean that David is a, is a warrior now, going forward? So look with me, if you would, at verses 38 through 50. Let's see the battle. And Saul clothed David with his own armor, and he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried to, in vain to go, for he had not tested them. David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. And he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a young, ruddy, and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Then the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give you flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, You come at me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel." and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. Now Saul starts out here by putting the bronze armor on him. And there's there's a contrast here that you might miss it if you read too fast. Saul's armor is not near as nice as Goliath's armor. Goliath has some iron accoutrements. He's got a heavier set of mail. His stuff is really, really nice. Saul's stuff is probably maybe a little bit more antique, maybe a little bit cheaper, but it's still bronze armor. It's still good armor, but David's never worn it before because he wasn't allowed to, and he's not about to go out in uh, in untested armor. And as David tells Goliath, he also is making a point here to to prove to, to the world. So David takes up his shepherding gear. He's going to fight this battle as a shepherd, as he's fought every battle so far. And he takes with him a staff, his sling and his pouch, and five smooth stones. And here we have to ask the question, what's the point of the staff and the other four stones? Because David technically just needed the sling and one rock. He didn't need the other four stones, and he doesn't need the staff. He doesn't use those. So what's the significance here? Why Why is, why is David not taking some armor, but taking some more gear that he doesn't really need? What's, is there something significant here? And some people try to say, you know, there's no significance, and some people try to, you know, like I said, with the five rocks, that's going to be the five points of the sermon or the five points of my business presentation. I don't think that's the right direction here. But what, what's being symbolized here, I think, is two things. The first is that David was prepared. He's going forward as a shepherd. He's going to take all of his shepherding gear. He's not leaving stuff behind. He's not trying to show off. Like he's not going into the battle with one arm tied behind his back, kind of making a joke out of this. He knows God's going to win. He knows he's going to be delivered, but he doesn't know how. He doesn't know if it's going to be rock number one or rock number two or rock number five, but he knows he's going to win. So he's not trying to be overprepared. He's not trying to be overcautious, but at the same time practically taking the kit that he's used to. So that's, that's why he's bringing these things with him. But I think the other thing we can learn, and this is kind of a subtle thing. You know, I, I come from a family of coffee lovers, and if you've ever been around people who are connoisseurs of coffee, they like to talk about the tasting notes, those, you know, those subtle little notes, that, like, ah, I can taste a little cherry in there, whatever it is. But when you, when you look at this passage and the whole scope of the Old Testament, there's a subtle, a subtle theme that runs through that's easy to miss. And it's this, that when God chooses a champion, their gear is inconsequential compared to the sheer amount of power that God brings to the table. And this is important for us. So when you think about Gideon, you know, Gideon has to, he's the weakest of the weakest, and he has to send most of his men home, and then he goes into battle, and they win an enormous victory. You know, Samson has only a jawbone, and he's going up against thousands of men, and he still wins the day. And we see this pattern over and over. Every champion that God picks in the Old Testament, completely untouchable. Their gear is inconsequential. They're going to win the day in ways that you can't believe. Moses raises his staff. The water's part. The entire chariot army of of Egypt is wiped away. This pattern over and over and over again through the Old Testament. What is it pointing to? It's pointing to Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus. It's showing us that Jesus, who is God's champion of champions, when he comes, will also be completely untouchable unless he wants to be. If you think about it, when, when the when the crowds come against Jesus, he says, this is not my hour, and he walks right past them. He doesn't have to fight his way out or talk his way out. He just walks past them because they can't touch him unless he says so. And this beautiful theme is, is, just kind of flows through the Old Testament, and then it's seen, revealed in Jesus as Jesus being God's champion. No one says anything, does anything to Jesus unless he lets them. And that's really important for us to understand what kind of warrior Jesus is. And and my next application for this, as we think about this passage, is this simple understanding that the battle between good and evil in the Bible is not an even match. It's not, will good triumph against evil? Will evil triumph against good? You know, it's not like good's here and evil's close. The Bible makes it very clear through the Old Testament and New. That evil, knows, evil doesn't have a chance. Just like David looking at Goliath, he doesn't have a chance. David walks on the battlefield, Goliath hurls, in it, hurls insults, David hurls one rocket, he's down in 10 seconds. Make a terrible movie, because there's almost no climax to it. He's, he's killed almost instantly. He, he, his shield is still being held by the shield guy, he hasn't even picked his shield up yet. And we'll see in a second here, his sword's still in his quiver. Goliath doesn't even get his gear out. He doesn't even get into the fight. There's no hour-long struggle. Goliath goes down in 10 seconds. It's it's a power imbalance of, of amazing magnitude. Good can't lose. And this is the theme throughout the scriptures. The message of the Bible is not, the question of the Bible, I should say, is not, will good triumph over evil? But instead, while good is triumphing over evil, that's the presupposition, can what is good, can what is pure, The God who is pure, can the pure God redeem what has been spoiled by sin and spoiled by evil? Can the people who have been spoiled be redeemed? That's the question of Scripture. It's an assumption of Scripture that evil is going to lose. There's no chance that Goliath has against David. David is going to win. Jesus is going to win. Satan doesn't have a ghost of a chance. But the question then of Scripture then is, but can what has been taken be brought back? That's the real question of Scripture here. And so as we think through spiritual issues, as we think through trials, as we think through our daily lives, my question for you is, do you think about the struggles in your life as an even karmic struggle? You know, do you have kind of a yin-yang, you know, evil is here and good is here and maybe, maybe, and I'm not sure what's going on? Or do you live with a mindset of good is going to triumph? My king has no chance of loss. I am going forward, serving the winning side, and there's no changing that, because that will change your mindset. That'll change the way you approach trials and problems and issues in your own life. If you if you have this mindset of there's no way we're going to lose this, and that's the, that's the uh, the that's what David takes into battle. He says, I am the Lord. I fight for the Lord. I want to show the earth that the Lord is real, and he takes Goliath down in ten seconds. There's not a there's not a dramatic fight scene here. He's he's down almost instantly, and it's the show that good is going to triumph and it's not going to be close. So as we as we kind of reset our minds and remember we have a good shepherd who is not going to give up on us and we serve a great God who can't possibly lose and who's going to win in ways beyond we can even imagine. Let us now see this final section. I want I want you to see how David then encapsulates what a good king looks like because David may have been anointed as king, and he may not have taken taken the actual role of king yet, but what we're going to see here in this last section is that he leads as a king. So look with me here at the the ending section, starting in verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, and they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shemarim as far as Gath and Ekron. The people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine, he's still carrying it, and brought it into Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out again, the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I don't know. And the king said, inquire whose son this boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine still in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. And here we see what a true king and a true leader looks like. See, David goes forward. He's killed Goliath pretty much. You'll see it says he kills him twice. He kills him with a stone. He's on the ground bleeding to death, probably hemorrhaging. His brain's been destroyed. His skull is literally crushed. And then he comes over. He draws his sword and he cuts his head off and holds it up so that everybody can see exactly what just happened. And he sends two messages here. He sends a message to the Philistines, your champion's dead, and you guys just lost bad. And then he sends a message back to Israel. He says, your champion is here. Their champion is dead. We're taking them, back. We're taking them right now. And you'll notice that all of Israel, these men who have sat there for 40 days making excuses and being cowards, and, you know, why don't you fight them? Well, I'm not going to fight them. You fight them. They've been doing that for 40 days and listening to the lies over and over, all of Goliath's lies, the liar is dead now. And they stand up and they shout and they're ready to go. And this defensive war of, can we just keep them from taking our territory? Suddenly they're going as far as Gath and Ekron. They're taking the cities that were they thought that they were just defending their own. They're taking the other cities. And then they're looting the tent and they're getting all of the armor and all of the gear and all the food and supplies that the Philistines had stored up. And they win this great victory. And who's leading the way the entire time? David, holding the crushed skull of his enemies, says, I have crushed the skull of the one who tormented you. You were free now to win the victory. What does that sound like? Who crushes the skull of our enemies? Here he is representing Jesus. Jesus has crushed the skull. On the cross, Jesus has wounded, mortally wounded Satan. He has crushed the skull of our enemy. And he has led the charge. Now, This is so important for us as we apply this because I want to be David. I'm sure you want to be David. We all want to be David. You know, we all want to go and, you know, I'm God's man and I'm going to go fight my enemies and, you know, I'm going to take on the giants in my life. That's not what this text is about. What this text says is that our David has already taken down the giant for us. We're the Israelites. So we can stop making excuses, we can stop sitting on the fence, we can stop waiting day after day, week after week as the month passes, going, "Mm, maybe you should do it, maybe I'll do it later, you know, if I just had some better gear, you know, if I had Greaves, then I could do this, but I don't have Greaves, I just have leather armor. You know, we, we stop making all these excuses and say, look, the champion has been defeated, we have God's man leading us forward, and now we can give a yell and go forward into the battle. And, and realize, too, that the, the, the role of the, of the Israelites here is not to go refight Goliath. Their goal is to take Ekron, to take Gath, and to loot the Philistines. That's a long day's work. That's a hard day's work. That's a bunch of heavy work. It's heavy work carrying all the loot back. So they're, they're not supposed to just sit back and go, good job, David. You took him down. Great show. No, they're going forward. They're fighting and killing the Philistines. They're looting the cities. They're taking territory. And and just like the Israelites, we're called on a mission. We don't get saved and then get to sit back and watch what God does. We're part of the operation. We have missions. We have duties. We have places in, in the world we need to go towards. So what does it mean practically then for us to be going forward? What does it mean for us to be following David, who has now defeated the giant. What does that look like? So I want to give you three resolutions, three applications that I see that, that we can take from this. What does it practically mean? The Bible says we have, we have three enemies, so I have three applications of how we can practically apply this text and practically follow Jesus into battle for the, for the coming year here of 2022. The first one I would challenge you with is to resolve to fight the sin in your own life. The whole thing started because the Philistines over and over again encroached on their territory. They tried to take this land, they tried to take this field, they tried to take this city. They slowly, slowly were eating away the land of Israel. And Israel had to say, no, this is ours, you get out. And I would encourage you, think back over the last year and ask yourself, what sins have been slowly encroaching on your life? Who are you, tr- who's trying to, what's trying to make a treaty with you? What's trying to take your passions and your desires? Is it, is it anger? Is it pride? Is it lust? Is it gluttony? Is it gossip? What sins are in your life that are slowly, slowly gaining ground and gaining territories? And, and how can you say, no, I'm following King Jesus, and I am not allowing any of my territory to be taken, and I'm going to do what it takes. I'm going to read and study and pray and get accountability and do whatever it takes to put this sin to death. So what I challenge you, look at what sins are encroaching on your life that you can fight back against. Second, I would encourage you to resolve to answer the lies the devil is putting in your head. For 40 days, the Israelites listened to Goliath curse and demean their God. You can't listen to something for 40 days and not have it get stuck in your head. The Israelites had Goliath's voice ringing in their ears even when he wasn't talking. All they could hear was, we don't have champions, they have champions. They have gods, and our God hasn't given us a champion. We are weak, they're strong. And that got in their head, and it wore them down, and it made their excuse factory run even faster. And they came up with reasons after reasons, like I said. And I'd encourage you, look to the Jesus who has defeated the liar. Jesus has killed the liar. And and when, when, when he mortally injures Satan and he mortally shuts him up, that gives us the strength and the courage to shut him up too. We can say, no, we have a champion. No, our God is good, and he is going to win the fight. We can go forward in confidence because he has demonstrated on the cross that he can pay the penalty for sin. And he has demonstrated by the open tomb that he can defeat death itself. And we can go forward in confidence. So ask yourselves, what lies has the devil been putting in your head? What lies do you need to, to rebuke and say, no, I'm going to trust in the goodness of God. I'm going to trust in the sovereignty of God. I'm going to trust that God is going to put me on the right path and, and help me to get where I